church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean, and it is great to be back with you. This week, we are going to wade into the water. We're going to start the the conversation leading up to that infamous Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind. Well, we have to set the stage just a little bit this week, and next week we'll get into the more juicier parts of the deception of the Satan, of the serpent in the garden. This week we're going to talk about the, again, recapping the mission that God gave to Adam, which we brought up last week, and we're going to see how Eve enters the stage, enters into creation by coming forth from his side. So there's a lot of really good material for us to cover today. So why don't we begin with a prayer and dive right in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All glorious and wondrous God, once again we stand before you in awe of your creation, of your work of salvation, guiding us and leading us, never letting us sit still long enough that we might we might not come forth and, and seek you out. From the moment of our fall, you have picked us up and dusted us off and shown us the way back to salvation. Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon us today and guide our conversation, enrich our lives, and show us the fruit of your grace in our lives today. I pray that the Blessed Mother, the new Eve, will intercede for each and every one of us as we seek to study the word of her son and seek to live his life in our life and to seek to to just become faithful people, citizens of the Most High God, his sons and his daughters. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the single leading us into the show today was Wade in the Water, from the album Anointing by Valimar and Frank Jensen. For more information on them, please stop by my website at www.catholichack.com. That's all one word, catholichack.com. 
Well, I, as I said, we need to finish up Genesis chapter 2, which actually brings us to the third chapter of A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. If you don't have your copy of this book, then you need to stop by my website, www.catholichack.com, and, and find the link and pick up your copy today, or pick up the audiobook. We also have uh, the audiobook as well, which is a, a great resource if you're not able to take the time to read the entire book, and it actually reads so fast, so quick. I think you could knock this out in a weekend, honestly, that uh, you can pick up the audiobook and listen to it maybe on your commute to work back and forth. So anyway, stop by the website and pick up those materials. Well, today we're going to start off on page 58, recapping just ever so briefly what we talked about last week, and that was the mission of God that God gave to Adam. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, we see what often people refer to as the second creation narrative, where, you know, it, it seems to be different than the first creation, Genesis chapter 1. And what we talked about last week was that was not actually the case. Those aren't, you know, contradictory stories. They are complementary. And if, for more information on that, I encourage you to stop by the website and listen to last week's show. Just click on under content channels there on the right-hand side. Click on Behold the Man and you'll have all the shows lined up in order. But on page 58, just to recap, uh, Scott Hahn says, The tilling part was clear enough since that, Adam's, uh, since that would be what Adam naturally would expect to do in a garden. But the word keep, or the Hebrew shamar, carries a distinct meaning to guard implying the need to ward off potential intruders. You see there in Genesis 2.15, God gave Adam his mission. He was to keep and protect the garden in which God placed him. Now, what we said last week was, this makes Adam the high priest. It makes the garden, the holy of holies, and all of creation, the temple. And so Adam, the high priest, not unlike Aaron, or the Levites serving in the sanctuary there in the tabernacle, or the, the priests serving in the, in the temple of Solomon, the same language is used for, for all of them. So we recognize him to be a priest. But this other word, this is what we're going to focus on now, shamar, to protect it. Protect it from what? He is the only man, as far as we've been told, according to the narrative. What does he have to protect it from? It, it sort of implies an intruder is possible. He goes on to say, this was how the word was used, the word shamar, this, this was how the word was used to describe the task of the sword-wielding Levites who were ordered by Moses to keep Israel's sanctuary free from encroachers. And for that, you need to see Numbers 17.12 through Numbers 18.6. So even the Levites, the sword-wielding Levites, were, were ordered to keep and protect the sanctuary. Adam, see, the Levites probably saw their role in the same way Adam was, was given his role by God himself. That's how we can interpret this, through the eyes of those Levites. Because as we said last week, the parallels between the sanctuary and the tabernacle in the wilderness and King Solomon's temple and the creation narrative are uncanny. They are by no means a mistake or a coincidence. It was intended to be that way. And so here is Adam keeping and protecting his garden all by himself. So we see, and, and as we said, the, the word protect now infers that there is the potential of an intruder. And Adam would have known that. 
But now, before we move on to Eve's entrance into the story, I want to talk about those two trees. You see, there are two trees in this garden, and we see this actually in the narrative of Genesis. In Genesis 9, we're, we're actually told of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And God goes on to tell Adam that, oh, the, all the best fruits in all of creation are right here, Adam, and right here in the garden. You have access to all of them, save one tree. You can have any fruit you want, but one tree you cannot eat. That's the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day you eat of that fruit, you shall die the death. Well, your narrative, your, your, your Bible probably says you shall die. You shall surely die. But the actual Hebrew repeats the word die the death. It, says, it repeats the death part. You shall die the death. That's very significant. It's going to play an even bigger role in next week's episode. So I want you to make a mental note of that. Go into Genesis there and sort of note that. Die the death. Very, very important. And basically, what that's inferring there is there is a difference between spiritual death and physical death. This is a key, key issue. Why? Because not only will it help to explain what actually happens there in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind, but even more important, even more significant than that, is it will help to interpret what Christ was doing there, also in a garden in Gethsemane, much further along in salvation history. That is the interpretive key to understanding the passion of our Lord. So please make a mental note, die the death. Please remember that. So we have these two trees, the, the tree of the life, which he was able to eat, by the way, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we'll also see as we look at typology, and I hope that by now, if you've been listening for any number of weeks or any number of episodes or been listening to my other podcast, The Catholic Hack, I think you'll learn by now that typology is really, really uh uh, important for you to get to understand how it's effective in interpreting scripture and really diving into scripture and the story of salvation history. Because like everything else, there is a, there is a, a new Adam in, in the pages of the New Testament, that's Jesus. There is a new Eve in the pages of the New Testament, that's our Blessed Mother. Where are the two trees? Where's the garden? There actually are two trees in the New Testament and there's actually a garden in the New Testament. So we actually see that all these, these implements of this story are there for a very specific reason, which goes back to how we interpret Scripture. The Hebrews didn't write history the way you and I read history today, maybe in a history book or on the pages of the New York Times. We've talked about this several times. You know, the Hebrews didn't write it blow for blow. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. No, no, no. They wrote about history, but they wrote about it in such a way that it, it conveyed a deeper meaning. The meaning was far more important than the than the play-by-play. -play. You know, like when you listen to the sports, you, if you're watching a football, for example, and you hear there's two there's two commentators on a on a sports cast. There's always the play-by-play -play announcer, and then there's always the color commentator. The color commentator he throws in all the tidbits. He gives you more of the meaning. The play-by-play, -play, he gives you the, just that. He gives you the play-by-play. -play. You know, number 42 is past the ball. Number 17, number 17's, you know, broken five tackles and running into the end zone for a touchdown. That's the play-by-play. -play. 
Scripture is written in a way that combines the two, where it talks about history, the play-by-play, but emphasis is on the meaning, the color commentary. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's a good analogy. So that's what we're seeing here. And I bring all that up because I want you to make note of the two trees. I want you to make note of the garden. I want you to make note of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And I want you to make note of the cherubim that we're going to run into next week. And the fact that there's river running through the garden and the, the gold and the onyx. All of these details are extremely important because we will see them again. They will come up again down the road in the fulfillment of all of these things. We will see how God goes out of his way to reenact all of this for a very specific reason, for a very important reason, our salvation. All right. I think I've emphasized that enough. Hopefully anyway. Okay. So you got the two trees. One is the tree of life, which he's allowed to eat, even though he's created this man, Adam, whose breath, the Ruah of God is breathed into his nostrils. He is already created immortal, but yet he's allowed to eat of the tree of life that gives him life. That's curious, isn't it? Why would he need to have fruit of life if he's already immortal? Hmm. Maybe God knew that something was coming down the way, that if he would only trust that maybe that that fruit could sustain his immortality. Hmm, possibly. You never know. Let's let's ponder on that one maybe next week again. Okay. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was specifically told, you cannot, you shall not eat this fruit, because if you do, on the day you eat it, you shall die the death. You have a choice. Spiritual life. Or spiritual death versus physical death. Your choice, which one? Physical death, uh, you might have a piece of fruit that you might be able to sustain. Anyway, we'll get into it. All right. So did Adam understand what death was? You know, there's been all kinds of uh, uh, comments over the years, centuries probably, at least in my lifetime, since I've come to the faith, that people would suggest that Adam probably didn't even know what death was. This was mere figurative language. It was a con const construct of, of literature, uh, Adam would not have known what death was. Completely ignorant to this, all the depictions of Adam and Eve are on this sort of, you know, hippie kind of, uh, you know, surreal level. It's That's not actually accurate. Because imagine if God gives you a test, he says, don't eat this fruit because on the day you do, you will die. If you didn't really know what die death was, if that didn't make any sense to you, then neither would the test. I mean, like uh, what it's like saying, okay, if you were, if you run this red light, then you're going to have to forfeit your Maserati. Wait a minute. I don't have a Maserati. What are you talking about? I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't have a Maserati. That doesn't even make any sense to me. I drive a, a, you know, a Dodge, you know, 12 year old minivan with no air conditioning in the state of Texas. I don't have a Maserati. What are you talking about? But we don't see anything like that here in the, in the narrative in Genesis chapter two. Adam must have understood, at least in some way, what death meant in order for the test to be valid, in order for the rule to work. And you and I know, we all live in families. Society, the whole world, is made up of rules. There's no way to escape it. My son has to live by rules in order to live in my home. He's still my son. He still eats at my table. He still bears my name, lives under my roof. And lives by my rules, not because I'm a demanding, you know, old curmudgeon, 
But because that's what family does. That's what family is. They live in community with one another, loving one another, but they have to live by certain rules. And so here we see there is no, there is no escaping this. Adam has rules. He's given these rules. He is made in the image and likeness of God. He is the son of the Most High. And yet, he, he, with immortality and no sin, you know, no sin to stain his soul. And so he, is, he doesn't have concupiscence at this point. He's not inclined to sin like you and I are. But yet, he must have understood what death meant in order to truly take that seriously. So we can't we can't just fluff this off as being some fairy tale, mythological story that, that just, you know, we can't dismiss it that way. We have to give much more credence to this, narr- this narrative because the details here are so valid for what we will understand about Christ Jesus later in the New Testament. So please keep that in mind. Adam would have had to have known what death meant, at least in some way, in order for this rule to apply to him. Otherwise, we would see protests we wouldn't understand, or or God would have had to explain it to him. Now, the naming game. We go on to see how Adam actually is taken all around, um, he's taken all around the garden, or actually, yeah, the garden, because what happens? All the beasts are brought to him. We can find this actually in Genesis Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Now, this is kind of interesting because there's a couple of points here I want you to remember. Let's just read this real quick. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 20. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. We go through Genesis chapter 1 where God creates the universe and says, It is good. It is good. It is very good. Here we are. Genesis chapter 2, one chapter off. And God's saying it's not good? What gives? What happened? What changed? What's not good is that man is alone. Oh, well, didn't God see that coming? I mean, wasn't he the one to create him? Of course, there is a point, there is a purpose. And so he's teaching us with this language. It is not good that man should be alone. And he sends Adam off in the garden because all the animals are brought to him and to name all of these creatures. Well, do we think he literally named all these creatures? Well, maybe, maybe not. That's not the important part. What's the important part? The important part is in all of this naming of all the beasts of the field, the cattle and the birds of the sky, is that he doesn't find any mate. Nobody who's on the same level as man. So, as I said, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. The point here is that among created beings. Man has no equal in the animal world. Man is not an animal. Doesn't have That has real-world implications for you and me today. We live in a world where we're constantly being told that we're just another animal in creation. No, we are not. God tells us that we are not just another animal in creation. 
that no matter how science figures out how the, the origin of the first man came about, whether it was evolved over many millennia or not, that, that's not the point. The point is, at some point, God intervened. God breathed life, the very soul, into the first man. That ruah, the breath of God, gave that, that man something far more valuable and far different than all the other creatures that might have been on the earth. What is that? That is a soul. And there was no equal in animal kingdom to man. And so God had to bring forth what? A woman. This is very important for us to understand. That God said it's not good. He's died. He, doesn't have his, he doesn't have his mate here. And so notice that the, the order of things. First, God creates man, makes him a son of the Most High, the son of God. Second, he gives him a job, a vocation. He's the high priest of the Holy of Holies. He's the guardian of the garden. He protects and keeps it, right? He, he works it and he, kept, he, he protects it. And then finally, he's found his helpmate, his, his, his equal, his bride. This is very cool. Now we move on here to woman. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 21 through 22, it says, So the Lord God caused, uh, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In interesting here how Adam is put to sleep after this day of naming the creatures, and from his side comes uh, a rib, closes it up, and from that rib, woman is created. And once the woman is created and Adam is revived and awakened, what happens? The woman is brought to him. Same thing happens with those creatures, right? God created all those creatures from, the, from what? The ground? Adam was created from the ground. The creatures were created from the ground. The creatures were brought to Adam to, to be what? To be named. And Adam names them. Now the woman is not created from the ground, but created from his side. And from his side comes woman, and the woman is brought to him. And he, he what? He names her. We're going to see that in the very next verse. But before I do, I want to go back and quote from you, from a father who keeps his promises. On page 62, this was a very cool um, sort of way to illustrate the importance of the equality of man and woman here at the very beginning of our, of our Holy Bible. Understanding the dawn of, of human history, how man and woman were created equal. Page 62, uh, Scott Hahn says, Sages comment on how God formed Adam's covenant partner in the proper way, not from his feet to be used as his doormat, not from his head to be put on a pedestal, but from Adam's rib to be at his side close to his heart. Isn't that so important? Eve definitely is his equal here. Notice the language. Now, depending on what verse or what uh, translation you read, it might be different. But in the, the translation that I read, which I believe is, is a little bit more precisely correct, which is the New Revised Standard Version, the Catholic edition, it says helpmate, you know, fit to be the helpmate. We must understand that when God created man, he created them. Made in the image and likeness of God, he created them, right? Male and female. He created them. That's what I wanted to say. Man by himself is not made in the image and likeness of God. Woman by herself is not made in the image and likeness of God completely. 
But when the two become one, the one flesh union in the marital bond, here we see at the dawn of time, the first man and woman are married and they are made in the image and likeness of God when they are in that one flesh union in their marital bond. That's the image and likeness of God. That's a powerful image. That's equality. And they both have different roles and different purposes. They both must serve their purposes. Not one over the other, but purposes and roles. We must serve our roles in our marriages. And that's going to become more important here in the next, next point that I want to make. All right. So here we have woman created and now brought to the man. Now let's read how Adam responds to all this. And he says there in Genesis 2, verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Can you hear the excitement in that narrative? I mean, I can just imagine Adam, who spent a whole day naming cattle and birds. You know, not really exciting stuff. And then all of a sudden, he wakes up from this deep sleep, and God brings forth God's own daughter, bringing it to this God's son, Adam, to be married in this covenant relationship. And he lays his eyes on this woman, who is the best of men, and he looks at her and he goes, Whoa! Wow! Wow! I mean, you can just see the excitement. It's nothing like the cattle. It's nothing like the birds. This is something far deeper and far greater than any of that. And so he calls her woman because she was made from the side of man. Very powerful stuff. That one, that that Eve, her beauty, excites Adam. The fact that she is his true and perfect helper excites Adam. And that is not lost in the narrative. We actually see that excitement, but I think too often we read it so fast and so quick that we don't give the attention that it's due to realize and contemplate that here we see in the first man and wife covenant relationship, here at the dawn of human history, we see the perfect equality among man and woman. And it's only through human sinfulness that it degrades later in societies and times and cultures. Again, it's not, it's not equal in roles. We all have, we have different roles. We must live out our roles. But it's equal in creation. She's the daughter of God. He's the son of God. I think it's a beautiful image. It's, a be- it's an image of covenant love that we see there on the pages of Scripture. So, Now, I want to show to you now some of the typology that really comes out here when we talk about some of the the points that we just brought up. For example, Scott says on the bottom of page 62, the sights and sounds of Adam's passion that are revealed here, pure and simple, prefigure the future, and even purer passion of Jesus, the new Adam. As such, Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself for his bride, the church, In his dying breath, he gave us his spirit. From his pierced side, there flowed living water and blood. Through this, through the deep sleep of his death, came forth the new Eve, who stood at his side, close to his heart. Now, here's a couple of points, a couple of quick, you know, points slash questions that I I came up with, just contemplating the parallels between Adam and Jesus Christ. 
here at this point in the narrative. Like Adam, Christ fell asleep. Like Adam, from Christ's side came forth the bride, his church. But unlike Adam, Christ was willing to die for his bride. Adam didn't die for his bride. Remember, he had a choice. He, if he ate the fruit, he would die the death. He has a choice. And we're going to get into this next week in great detail. Save your, save your soul or save your flesh. Don't forget, there's a tree of life sitting there with fruit that could maybe restore physical ailment, restore mortality, trust in the resurrection of God. Hmm. Keep that in mind as we go into next week's episode, as we get into greater detail. Real quick here, there's four points I want to wrap us up with as reminders. First, Adam's duty to guard the, guard the garden implies a potential intruder. This is found on page 64. Second, the mortal danger facing Adam refers to a spiritual death beyond the physical. Third, the tree of life was Adam's insurance against the potential loss of physical life. And fourth, when Eve came forth from Adam's side, God called him to even greater duty than work, that is, to love his bride. To love his bride. Enough to what? Enough to die for her. Christ died for his, Ephesians 5. But Adam didn't die for his bride. And with that, we're going to wrap it up this week. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot of juicy material there. I hope you're buying this book and I hope you're reading this book. A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. Stop by my website if you want more information on getting one of those or listening to this episode or any of the other episodes at www.catholichack.com. Remember, I could use your help on iTunes. So stop by, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Well, until next time, I'm praying for you. So please pray for me. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. <laughs>